to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. And so, welcome to my guest, Dr. Richard Churches, who is Global Head of Research at the Education Development Trust. Richard, welcome. Thanks, John. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome indeed. And I'm looking forward to this because there are so many things I want to ask you because of your, not only the work you're doing now, but your your really, really varied career and your, the path you've personally taken towards uh, where you are now. So there's a lot to talk about. And in my own sense of what this show is for, we're trying to explore broadly through the, through the guests over the last few weeks, what schools are for and what education is for. And um, looking back on that from my perspective is just having just retired as a teacher. So the first question I'd like to ask you, Richard, I know something about trusts, but I don't know that I know a lot or I know a little more than I did about the work of the Education Development Trust. Can you tell me a little bit about that organisation? Sure. Education Development Trust is an international not-for-profit charity. Uh, we work across the world to try and improve education outcomes for children. Uh, we've been around since the 1960s and we used to be called CFPT Education Trust. Although your listeners may not know about us because you can't phone us up and buy something from us, they probably have encountered us somewhere. We ran the National Strategies in England for seven years. We used to run 70 Ofsted inspections a week across the whole of the north of England. And we've won a range of different teacher training programs over the years in, in the UK. One of the things that makes us unique is we do invest in research programs, and we've got a number of key focuses at the moment, one of which is girls' education around the world. That's helping girls to transition through school and deal with the barriers to learning. We're also doing some work on climate change and climate change education. And we've got similar programs looking at ed tech, post-COVID recovery, early years, and also tutoring. Well, thank you, Richard. The, clearly, the Education Development Trust is quite a portfolio organisation. There are two things I think I want to get out of this interview. And I want to ask you about your understanding of how, uh, how a teacher's understanding of neuroscience can enhance teaching. Also, the relationship between science and teaching, and particularly your work on randomised controlled trials with teachers. But before we get there, looking at your career and preparing for this interview, I was surprised to see that you came from quite a sort of unusual angle into your current role. You came from the direction of music, which I think is going to be relevant to what we talk about later in terms of neuroscience and the way people learn and problem solving and so on. So what brought you from the world of music to the to where you are now? Well, music got me into teaching uh, by a strange route. Uh, I was actually, my first job in education was for the Department for Education on behalf of the Composers Guild of Great Britain, helping in the consultation for the new GCSE exam, where the government wanted to include composing alongside listening and other areas of music and performing. And I was part of that consultation. And I did workshops in some international schools. And then my CV got circulated by Gabitas, Truman and Thring. And a head teacher from Italy phoned me up and said, can you come and teach in my school? And I said, well, I'm not actually a teacher. I'm a musician. And he said, that's great. When can you start? Because they'd had a lot of music going on that didn't involve much music in the past. 
And so I said, well, if you want someone who can help the children perform and compose and get interested in music, he said, that's exactly what I want you to do. And then I got a bug for teaching and um, I then got a job back in England. I was director of music at a haberdasher's company school, which was terrific. Then moved into a challenging inner city school and moved into senior leadership. That got me very interested in leadership and working at a bigger level. And I applied for a job in the back of the Times Educational Supplement at what we called then CFBT Education Trust, before we changed our name to Education Development Trust, and ended up designing the training for the Fast Track Teaching Programme. And it was at that point that a lot of things came together. So my master's in education research, I got very interested in looking at areas of psychology that could inform teaching and learning. This is way back in the early 2000s, where a lot of people said, psychology, that's got nothing to do with us. I then did a series of British psychological qualifications, including level B, which is the highest qualification you can get as a practitioner without going back and doing a degree. And then integrated a lot of that work into Department for Education programs, including team building, psychometric assessment and 360. We had an assessment centre as part of fast track teaching. And then at that time, I became very interested in doing a PhD in leadership. And it was charismatic leadership and speeches that I got interested in. Uh, Originally, the intention was to look at the language patterns of charismatic leaders. My literature pointed to really interesting area and the extensive suggestions that in the right context, a leadership speech might alter people's consciousness, make them more open to following the leader and more willing to do so. And I was lucky to come across um, a clinical psychologist in the States called Ron Pekela. He gave me a huge amount of support. Uh, he was doing a lot of work measuring the structure of consciousness in an experimental setting. The, I got a university degree for me to do my PhD with help across the university departments to do it because it was very interdisciplinary. And that all came together as well for me. I was asked to be part of the House of Lords All-Parliamentary Working Group on Brain Science in the Classroom that Susan Greenfield ran. And from there came the two books, Neuroscience for Teachers, that I wrote with Ellen Domitney in Devonshire, and Teacher-Led Research, which is about teachers learning to do randomised control trials. So it's been a, an interesting journey. I think it started becoming a teacher, then becoming an AST, doing a master's degree, ending up working for a consultancy and just getting fascinated with the programmes I was running and then thinking, well, what PhD could I do? And that, that's really how I ended up. Well, that question you asked yourself there was, you asked yourself there was, is quite a good link to our, to the next part of our conversation. Because if I'm trying to find out what schools are for, and indeed my own experience of teaching was that that question, what are we doing? How can we do it better? How might we improve the process? What works and what doesn't work seems to me to have been a difficult question to ask in terms of schools because the school environment is so busy, it's so pressured. It's often a sense that you are delivering something that was determined by decisions made by management or governments. So the next thing I'd like to ask you about is your work with randomised control trials and how you have promoted the idea, how have you, that schools can be places where research can take place. Well, we've been teaching teachers to do a range of types of action research for over 20 years, uh, both qualitative and quantitative. My experimental research experience has been invaluable in the end. I didn't think it would be in taking teachers into a space where they can run their own randomised control trials 
and find really efficient ways to look at pupil outcomes. Uh, and that's been a really interesting journey. In fact, it was teachers that started doing it. I was the technical lead and program manager for Closing the Gap Test and Learn for the Department for Education a few years ago. That was a program of large-scale randomized control trials. And there, part of the DfE we're working for was passionate about the idea of getting the teachers to be doing as much of the running of the trials as possible so that they felt involved in it and didn't feel done to. And so to do that, we didn't have external evaluators. The teachers were taught to evaluate their own delivery of the protocols. And we ran a couple of research strands to improve their research method skills. So Oxford University Education Department did the qualitative stuff. And being in charge of the program, I couldn't resist going around the country teaching experimental research and how to design an RCT with no other view than to build the teacher's scientific literacy. Within two weeks, we had teachers sending us a little Excel spreadsheet saying, I've done this really short randomized control trial. What did I find? And we realized we needed to expand the program and the Department for Education very kindly contributed some additional funds and support. And we built that into something where they could put a bid in, get a little research grant. We didn't think that we'd get many pieces of research from them. We had 70 high quality proposals. We ended up with 50 fascinating little studies. And from there, we've taken that forward again to encourage teachers to explore this type of research as well. Firstly, to build their scientific literacy, because we're now moving into a world where increasingly the randomized control trial evidence is becoming important. And it's important for teachers to understand the process and the limitations and be able to make use of that evidence well. Secondly, it's another way for teachers to do small-scale action research where they can draw on uh, pupil outcomes as the measure. And it's actually really quite easy to do a small-scale study over a short time in a school. When I did my PhD, which was laboratory experimental, very hard work. You have to find these participants. You have to persuade them to clum. You have to do all of this stuff. Well, you've got a captive audience as a teacher, and you're probably delivering two classes. They're probably doing the same content, and you can easily deliver one class one way and one the other and see what happens in that classroom, even from a qualitative point of view. But increasingly, we saw the benefit, and it was during a Wellcome Trust-funded program into neuroscience-informed teacher-led RCTs. So we taught teachers about neuroscience, said, what would that look like if you used it in the classroom? Because that translation gap is a real issue. And then we put it all into what you call a meta-analysis, like EEF do. And that was a fascinating thing, because we realized the potential of getting a lot of teachers to come together to look at the same area. Because, of course, a teacher study can be interesting at an individual school level and useful experience teacher, but you can't really generalize it because the sample size is quite small. But if you get 100 teachers to look at a particular area and you put all the results together, you've got something really interesting and you can start to see some patterns in the variation. And we did that recently with a Department for Education report that you can find online. There's also a College of Teaching Journal, Impact, Impact Journal, about this, where we looked at the effect of reducing teacher workload on attainment, well-being, and teacher time. And we, in that analysis, we had 112 effect sizes from different schools, and they looked at areas like reduced marking, reduced planning, uh, more efficient communication, less data drops, and we were able to look across attainment. The good news, by the way, is that, that reducing teacher attainment was actually associated with improved pupil outcomes. So we know that it wasn't harmful, which is very good news. 
yeah, across the board, the, if you reduce teacher workload in these what you might call proxy process areas, as a former Ofsted inspector, I could tell you now that never known an Ofsted inspector ever interested in a lesson plan or how much what writing a teacher does on a pe person's piece of work. They're much more interested in what's happening in front of me now in this lesson and what's caused it in the teacher's practice, how it compares to other schools in my experience or nationally. And sometimes I think head teachers have gone too far down the road of worrying about paperwork rather than pupil outcomes. So we got some very brave teaching schools together across the country. Some of them removed physical marking almost completely and switched to more live in the classroom market where they were seeking to trigger the children's metacognition by having a clearer goal, some more deliberate practice, the children knowing what learning strategies to use and the evaluation of those by the children themselves with then the teacher more of as a facilitator and corrector of misconceptions. And those were the studies that we found uh, at the positive effect sizes in most, most frequently. Just say in terms of the efficiency, because I think your question was also about how easy it is. We've also taught teachers how to do some simple analyses using their existing data. So it's quite easy to compare your classes score to say a national mean or a mean for the past, if you've got the right tool. And so we built Excel spreadsheets that will do that for teachers and produce an effect size. And over the years, we've, we've run teacher-led research like this as far afield as Colombia and Australia, Sierra Leone, and multiple times in, in the UK. And we're hopeful to do some more as time goes on. It seems to me what you're doing or trying to do is to take that feeling that teachers have, that knowledge teachers have, the ideas they have about learning strategies, the things they've tried, the things they wonder what would work best, and give them the skills to pursue that possibility and understand whether it works, as well as putting them into a research environment that can link with other schools in a more cooperative, more comparative kind of way. That does seem to me to be really useful in sort of cutting across the isolation that teachers feel individually and the competitive nature of schooling as we know it today. One of the programs you, I was reading about that you conducted, was you were involved in, was called Closing the Gap. And of course, with this, that's a very hot topic at the moment after COVID and so on, and with the government's levelling up programme. But Closing the Gap involving over 300 teachers, how creatively were those individual teachers involved? I mean, the learning strategies and the interventions, did they come from outside? Were they given to teachers to try or were the teachers able to generate ideas of their own? Well, the big programme had selected interventions that schools could purchase and a range of those that were then being trialled in large-scale trials. So the big programme actually involved over 200 trial site schools and 30,000 pupils. Within it, we had the strand of research methods training to improve the understanding of the teachers and their research skills. And from one of those, teachers started to do trials all on their own back. We said, well, we never thought they would do that. I suppose it was my own fault for having been a teacher for many years. And instead of just telling them to do stuff, I got them to do it in a very collaborative, bottom-up sort of way. If you were to design a trial, what would it be like? And taught them all the different ways. And of course, they left with a little research protocol. And it wasn't surprising that they then went ahead, some of them, and actually delivered that research protocol and then said, well, how do we analyze it and write it up? And that led to a lot of hours producing some Excel spreadsheets so they could calculate the effect size and the level of significance and other things. 
and uh, and it grew and we got a number of grants which we still applying for in different places so so from a teacher's point of view being involved in a research project offers the possibility of gaining new skills and but also i think there might be some sort of collateral benefits as well in terms of shortly i'll be interviewing dr jennifer chung from ucl university who's who's written the most fascinating book i came across on the Finnish education system or the, the schools of Finland, which by any account, by almost any objective measure, are some of the most successful schools and the most, the most successful schooling system in the world. And yet, of the many features that are interesting about the Finnish system, one of those is the high status in which teachers are held. And we've moved to an all graduate teaching profession in this country, but the Finns have moved to, they've taken a step further, and they've moved to an all master's degree teaching profession where it's as difficult to become a teacher in Finland as it's more difficult, in fact, than to become a doctor. And teachers in Finland are required to be involved in academic research, to be, to be understanding the process of teaching, to be engaged in research, or to be engaged in some kind of academic study of, the, of teaching. Well, you have to give them time and you have to give them space. So I can see many benefits of being involved in research as a teacher. What do, what do you think the benefits that you've seen that teachers can gain from this kind of, kind of activity? I think uh, we've seen it in lots of different ways. I think just stepping back and thinking, is this better than that, is a really powerful way of thinking about, if you like, clinical practice, the practice of being a teacher in the classroom. And it's something we've got to get our heads around, I think, in the next stage of what you might call the evidence mobilization movement, really. Uh, it helps teachers to feel the same sort of empowerment that, that doctors and clinicians do around their practice. I mean, let's face it, you know, our, our sisters in, and cousins in medicine and healthcare, they do the clinical research that takes things from bench to bedside. The vaccine comes out in the laboratory, but it's clinical trials with real practitioners who are already serving teachers, still serve, sorry, still serving doctors. In teaching, it's often people that never practiced or no longer practice that are telling teachers what to do. And I think that's a big shift we've got to make. There's also something about weaning ourselves off a world where for too long we've listened to powerful people who come up with an idea and persuade us to do it. And that's led us to have all sorts of strange folk pedagogies and myths. And it then erupts in some of the thinking. You know, in the 19th century, doctors would reason their way to a treatment rather than use a clinical trial approach. They might say blood contains iron. Well, that's correct. Magnets attract iron. Therefore, I have a treatment with a magnet. Wrong. That's how we ended up with things like learning styles. People say they like different types of stimuli. Well, that's true. As a general principle, teachers need to adapt their needs to the needs of the individual. True. Therefore, if I adapt my teaching to what people say they need, VAK-wise, they'll learn better. Wrong. There's nothing wrong with having these interesting ideas and reasoning them from an observation, but we need to get more used to putting them into some sort of practice. And I think that that can actually be measured, particularly if we're making claims about outcomes. So I see teachers being involved in the delivery of randomized control trials in some way and the translation of if you like the laboratory evidence from universities etc into practice is really really important part of the evidence-based practice question and how that could work 
Yes, teaching can be so subject to the latest whim or fashion or myth. I certainly remember the learning styles and being instructed on how to identify students with kinesthetic learning methods. And of course, it was all utter nonsense or largely nonsense and, you know, left and right brains. Also, the kind of um, uh, top down approach you're talking about there of powerful people instructing you how to deliver certain lessons and how to deliver certain lessons to garner good observations, but also to um, to ensure that everyone's learning and so forth. It seems to me there's a possibility that this kind of empowered teaching research in schools might offer the possibility of escaping from the top down swing between traditional methods of teaching back towards progressive methods of teaching and and teachers being somewhat pawns in that in that movement, which is socially driven and politically driven as well. There are so many things that schools do. I don't think teachers really believe in. One of the interesting chapters in your book, Neuroscience for Teachers, was where you talk about the misuse of research. And one of my recent guests, Professor Rose Luckin from UCL, emphasised the way we need to be literate in order to, to, to deal with or to be, to be prepared for a world of artificial intelligence, in other words, become literate in those kinds of technologies. It seems to me you're asking teachers or you're hoping that teachers or preparing teachers to become capable of asking the right questions. I think that's right. And, and the question people should ask is, what's the research evidence for that? And then what type of research method was used to accumulate that research evidence? And sometimes there have been things that have just not got evidence to support them. Some of the reading movements that developed in the 1980s, which are still prevalent in some parts of the world, where the children are not being taught to read through decoding in combination with linguistic comprehension and thereby gaining reading comprehension, but rather just being put in discussion groups about a book. And actually, when you look into some of those forms of, of reading, um, strategy, you find there really isn't any empirical evidence particularly to support them, be it qualitative or quantitative. And I think we there's a time now to step back. We, we're very interested in telling people what works. We might just need to raise our game a little bit, telling people what doesn't work, so that we can begin to discount some of the things that, that we know are not are not that helpful. And I think that would be good. Uh, we're doing a lot of work around evidence-based practice, uh, particularly with the What Works Hub as well, and a project in Sierra Leone um, that's very interesting too. That's interesting. Evidence-based practice. That's a term I'm hearing a lot lately, as I think there is a move to try to find a scientific methodology of teaching and move it away from being something slightly mystical, certainly away from the fads and and social myths. You know, anyone can be a teacher. I remember the days of a sort of mum's army of school inspectors and so on. The, the idea that certainly in primary schools, any, any well-meaning and confident person could be a teacher. So the evidence-based approach to teaching is both empowering and rooted in something more substantial. However, some of the best teachers I've encountered in my career, I'd find it hard to identify exactly what it is they do. It does almost seem to be something that is in the realm of an art. Therefore, a question I would ask you is, for many teachers, te teaching is an art. 
rather than a science. And so there's a question, is teaching an art or a science? I think it's both art and science, uh, but you have to see the science as similar to the way perhaps the architects use physics, particularly when it comes to the evidence from neuroscience and cognitive psychology. Just as you can't build a building against the laws of physics as an architect, so you can't easily contradict some of the basic ways that we know that learning happens from a cognitive perspective. That said, the science does not tell you how to build a beautiful building or the education research exactly how to create an inspiring lesson. We got very interested in this in our research program a few years back, and we collaborated with Oxford University on two research reports looking into inspiring teachers and what they did and who they were. And in one of the strands of research, we identified teachers that their head teachers saw as inspirational and did a sort of all-round research program around them, looking at their background, their lessons, what they said about themselves, what the children said and others said. And the findings were very, very interesting. Perhaps the first thing to say, they all came from very diverse backgrounds. We couldn't find anything similar in terms of their background or their previous success as teachers. Some of them said they'd failed in teaching early on, and there'd been this moment when it all changed. Some of them said they'd always felt they were a good teacher. Very different, but they did have something very much in common. And that was, in terms of their lessons, they were goal-specific, very goal-specific, even to the level of the individual child. But although they were goal-specific, they were not route-specific. They flexed all the time in the lessons, went off plan frequently to get to the goal, changed what they were going to do. Everybody that knew the teachers thought that they were the best planned teachers in the world. And although they had a clear plan, they very rarely stuck to it. The children thought the teachers had planned every single question because they're always able to ask the next most perfect question because they hadn't planned all those questions. They were just completely responsive. And the best metaphor we could come up with for this type of teaching was the London taxi driver. They learn all the knowledge. I think there's 140-something routes, and they learn them rigorously. But then when they've got a customer in the back, they flex. They switch route depending on the driving conditions and the customer in the back. Uh, I guess today we might look at the parallels with the metacognition and self-regulation evidence that's at the top of the EF teaching learning toolkit, the idea of getting the children to have a clear goal, teaching them to self-monitor and select the best learning strategy to achieve the goal and then evaluate. Well, that's what the teachers were doing. They were metacognitive to their lesson, but they were absolutely clear where they were going to get to in terms of the lesson and the learning outcomes. That's such a useful distinction between the science of education and the art of teaching or the art of delivery. The analogy of a taxi driver is such a good one, really. The, the ability to deliver it with your own style, with your own personality. And yet there are certain things which hold universally true or scientifically provable, possibly, and certainly or prove and can be improved upon. Well, that seems to be like a very good moment to take a short break now as we listen to a message from the sponsor and also Teachers Talk Radio News. So join me again in a few minutes with my guest, Dr. Richard Churches, Global Head of Research at the Education Development Trust, as we continue to think about the possibility of schools being places of original research. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, 
the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This week the World Cup has begun with head teachers asking themselves should they allow their students to watch the competition in schools? The appalling human rights record of Qatar and how to address the ethical issues behind this particularly contentious sporting occasion poses particular problems for them. Anti-bullying week draws to a close with many schools involved in, in projects to confront bullying. With many schools applying for government grants on the government's education hub. Chief Inspector of Schools Amanda Spielman indicates that many schools previously classified as outstanding have now been reclassified as failing. Professor Colin Richards responded that this is largely due to fundamental misunderstandings which Ofsted chief inspectors have fostered. That Ofsted inspections can never be objective measures of quality. They're complex and they are subjective judgments. Read more in The Guardian this week. And we're back with my guest, Dr. Richard Churches, Global Head of Research at the Education Development Trust. Richard, we were talking about evidence-based education and teachers as researchers. And one of the features of teaching which you've looked at, and you've looked at it in a more general sense, is the charismatic leader and the charismatic teacher or the inspirational teacher. And I know that your PhD research was into charismatic leadership and charismatic speech. Certainly I've met inspirational teachers and again they come in a variety of, of all shapes and sizes and I'm wondering what it is that makes a teacher inspirational. Can teachers learn to be inspirational? Is it something you can acquire? Are there features of inspirational teaching that are universal or identifiable through some form of research? Well the, well, the charismatic leadership literature is very interesting and it shows it's a complex situation. So people have had lots of theories about charismatic leadership for many years. Today, we tend to think of leadership that's charismatic as a bit like a fire. So in order for charismatic leadership to happen, the followers need to be dry as a bone. The context needs to provide some oxygen around them, and the leader then can just be a spark. And of course, charismatic leadership can burn 
like a fire. History tells us that for good or for ill. And I think there's a parallel perhaps to the education movement challenges we've been talking about as well earlier and the problem of too easily being able to be influenced by a powerful person that tells us to follow an idea, even though there hasn't been any empirical evidence to suggest it will improve outcomes. It's just that. In terms of are teachers born or made, I think it's a combination of both, I have to say. I think that some people can get a bit more of a head start because of their life experiences and the type of person that they are. But I don't think you really know what you're going to be like in the classroom until that door shuts on you and you've got 30 other people's children in front of you and there's nobody there but you. And I think it's at that moment when the job begins. I remember as many young teachers coming into the profession and encountering the experienced teacher whose class seemed to be well-ordered, quiet, attentive, and I'm struggling to get control of my class and thinking, how do they do it? I'll just, I'll just copy him. And it, it, didn't, it didn't work. And there was a mystical moment some couple of years in when I thought, well, I can sort of do this now, but I'm not sure what I'm doing differently. I, I've acquired it. On uh, Future Teaching Scholars, which I was the programme director before uh, for quite a long time for the Department for Education, we've had a psychological assessment centre for some time. And we've, we've been doing some research looking at whether the assessment centre predicts later classroom practice in terms of the teacher's effectiveness in the classroom against a number of measures of teacher effectiveness. And we found some very interesting things. Not surprisingly, we run a mock teaching exercise where the teacher is observed by two assessors, who in our model are both outstanding teachers from a teaching school, experienced one of them in the subject area where they're teaching. They teach a 10-minute lesson, and then the evaluators role-play children to some extent. So they'll interrupt with a something that doesn't make any sense, like, do you like Taylor Swift? Or another one just won't be able to get it. And we measure whether the how well the teachers adapted to that environment to keep themselves, to keep calm, and respond really well. And we found that that activity predicts later classroom practice. We also asked them to reflect on that mock lesson, if you like, that simulation, and that doesn't predict it at all. The other thing that we found that's interesting is we do a competence-based interview, and actually teachers that are more passionate and inspiring in their discussions of why they want to children doesn't always translate into classroom practice. And that's quite interesting. So there's definitely a technical aspect to teaching that can be enhanced and some people perhaps can start a little bit further on is perhaps what I'd say. Um, I don't know whether many people would agree with me on that. I think it's a complicated scenario. Yes, I think it is a complicated scenario indeed. And I mean, the technical skills, the tricks of the trade, standing at the position in the classroom where you can see all the students, welcoming them in, to the room, knowing their names, forming a relationship with them. All these things you can tell us, a young, new teacher, these things. You can say, do this, do that. Make sure you have your lesson objectives clear in your mind and so on. But the sixth sense, that ability I saw in some teachers very early in my career, that they could somehow see what was going on behind them. And yet I think I developed that later. The awareness of the room even when I wasn't looking in a certain direction. 
Yes, I had that experience when I was an advanced skills teacher. I mean, I became an advanced skills teacher, obviously, people thought I was quite good at teaching and left my senior leadership role to go back into the classroom in a school in Thamesmead. And one of the first teachers that I went out in terms of outreach to support was a teacher that just couldn't get classes to do anything. And I had the theory a bit like yours in a way, which was if I got this person to teach a lesson that I'm absolutely sure couldn't go wrong, it would all be fine. And so I sort of rehearsed this teacher as I might rehearse a music performance to the point where I knew they could deliver it exactly like I would, I thought. And it was a complete disaster. And um, of course, there's much more going on there. And it was in that lesson that I noticed the way she engaged with the children. And it wasn't, um, it was more about that I recognized the children didn't feel safe with her because she was trying to be too nice all the time rather than organized and structured. There's a sort of adult to adult relationship you've sort of got to build with the children where they trust you. And you sort of take on the look of a teacher, I think, don't they? I've had ever had that experience where we said you were a teacher, weren't you? And it's probably just a raised eyebrow or a look or something like that. But you never quite lose it. And and that sort of has to be learned by observing others and being other people's classrooms, doesn't it? I think at the end of the day. Yes, yeah, interesting what you said about the goal the goal centered teacher. That was a common um thing that seen in teachers that were successful. So they knew where they were going. They might take different routes to get there, but they knew where they were going and experience I've had of the of the lesson that didn't go too well is I wasn't clear where I was going and I would really from sometimes I'd over I'd over prepared the lesson in a sense but I had too many goals I was trying to achieve too much and when I had a clearer idea of where we were going it was altogether more I was more confident and the lesson went tended to go better and of course as well it doesn't always go well John I mean when I was an advanced schools teacher I could teach some great lessons but sometimes for no apparent reason I teach a lesson that just didn't work and even now, if I look back on it, I couldn't really be sure exactly what it was. There was something that didn't quite connect enough with enough of the children to move it on to the next stage. And that's where I think those inspiring teachers that we looked at were getting it right more often because they were saying, yeah, I've got my lesson plan. I know the subject. I've got my trick, pedagogy tricks, if you like. I know exactly what I might do. But the moment they notice something not quite right. They're ready to adapt, to bring that child back in or ask the next question to scaffold that thinking and move it one stage on. This seems a good point to explore the other thing I wanted to talk to you about and hopefully explore in this interview. Is your book Neuroscience for Teachers? And indeed, the, the whole concept that understanding the brain, understanding how human brains work, neuroscience, might be useful in the classroom. And of course, it seems at first a fairly obvious thing. Um, what did I know about neuroscience? I knew that memory, I knew the difference between, I knew something about memory and neuroscience. I knew ideas of short-term memory and long-term memory. It seemed quite useful to remind students that repetition was no bad thing. Moving things from short-term memory into long-term memory was generally achieved through repetition. That's how people learned some fairly difficult skills, playing musical instruments, David Beckham hammering a ball for hours against a wall. That the thousand hours idea, that learning through repetition wasn't a bad idea. There are, of course, increasing advances in how we understand the brain to work. And I guess, therefore, 
teachers should be aware of those things. And maybe we can be more aware of the human brain and neuroscience to improve our teaching. Yeah, there are so many interesting levels. I mean, just at the first big, really big picture level, all the creatures that didn't pay attention to novel or unusual things got eaten. And that's why attention is such an important part of the learning process. And so you know, a pink chicken wandered into, wanders into this conversation and starts making loud noises. We're going to notice it uh, because it's salient. And that process of attention is happening largely at an unconscious level. So helping teachers to be aware of the importance of attention, the role that selective attention can play, particularly when they're modelling, you know, signposting a child's attention and the class's attention to that small additional step you built in. So it doesn't end up like the gorilla in front of the lift. And apologies to any of your listeners that have not seen the gorilla in front of the lift. But it's a very famous example of an experiment where you can have someone throwing a ball to each other, a group in front of a lift, as it happens on the video that's often online. And someone in a gorilla suit walks by. But because you've got the people counting the balls, a significant proportion of them will not actually notice the gorilla. That process is happening all the time. It's not a bad thing. It's what enables us to be so sophisticated at pinpointing the next thing we're going to do. But it can easily overwhelm working memory with information. So getting the children to be focused on the right thing, grabbing their attention in an interesting way. And the second principle, as you alluded to, coming across something that might be useful, sorry, coming across something in the environment that might be useful for survival is really important. So the brain also tunes into repeated stimuli. Oh, that's come up before. Maybe I could use it or need it. So those two processes, salience, the novelty of stimuli grabbing attention, but then needing repetition as well, are in contradiction, aren't they? And I think just reflecting on that in the classroom is really helpful for teachers to get them to think about how can you be engagingly repetitive, if you like. And that is, in a sense, the challenge. And being engagingly repetitive, I guess, comes close to what we were talking about earlier, about the difference between the underpinning principles of the lesson, the structure of the lesson, and the ability of the teacher to adapt and be creative in their delivery. That said, there are also some really important things that we can get from neuroscience, one of which is neuroscientists helping us to understand where there are myths, because a lot of those myths are about passing on a belief to someone about their learning that's not helpful. If you see yourself as a visual learner and believe that, you may discount all sorts of opportunities to look at other things in a different way. Or you may limit yourself. Or you think you're a left brain learner on the right brain and therefore I can or can't do science or art. And all of those limiting beliefs that can come from it. And not to mention, of course, there's a tremendous waste of human resources and, and taxpayers' money uh, in a country that, that pays tax to be spending money on on, on these, these things. So that's another element. Also, there have been big advances in our understanding of special educational needs and individual differences and putting some flesh around our understanding of just how normal some of this is and how we should respond and how we can deal with it. A third one, uh, which Ian Devonshire wrote a fabulous chapter on, is the teenage brain uh, and these massive changes that are happening in the teenage brain that can help us to understand why teenagers get so weird. So 
those three principles are basically the brain undergoes three massive remodeling processes. First, everything speeds up. So if you've seen a neuron, you know, it looks a bit like an electrical cable with fingers at either end. That's because it is an electrical cable. Electric current travels down the axon. Around it is some insulation called myelin uh, sheath, which is a sort of fatty substance. And the more of that is, the faster the electric signal goes, a bit like having more insulation on electrical wire. And there's myelination in the teenage brain. So they think quicker. They're interested in new things. They go all like that. The emotional and thinking center of the brain get completely readjusted. And that's why they get all socially cautious and vulnerable, but also in groups willing to take risks. And there have been lots of really strong experiments on that. And the third one uh, that is also important is something happens called neural pruning. So learning is not just the creating of associations between neurons. It's also the removal of those associations. And the teenage brain loses a lot of stuff as pruning takes place to make space for the wonder that will be the adult brain and everything that it needs. It's got the potential to achieve in late teenage years and beyond. Though so a teenager will forget a lot of stuff. And I wish I'd known that when I used to walk back in and think to the about the year eights and year nines, thought, why on earth have you forgotten everything we did before the summer? And just to be aware that, hey, I'm going to have to do a lot more revisiting around this time. Because stuff you think, well, they did that in primary school. They must still have it. They may not have it unless it was really, really well embedded, you might argue. So those are those are really important aspects. And I suppose finally, of course, what has now ended up at the top of the EEF teaching and learning toolkit, which is metacognition and self-regulation, becoming aware of the importance of, in the individual child's mind of knowing the goal, having learning strategies, selecting them and monitoring themselves on the way to that goal, and how brilliantly expressed in the EEF guidance you can get to that point moving from teacher-controlled lesson to more guided practice into independent practice and then a sort of conscious awareness of how the child learns, but not in a sort of wishy-washy learning-to-learn way that we had maybe we were talking about in the 1990s and 2000s, but very much around the deliberate practice of of subject-level skills, knowledge, and understanding. So I think so. that was a big whistle-stop tour of, of, of the topic of neuroscience and what I think is uh, what's important. And there's a chapter on just about all of that in the book, by the way, as a, a plug. Thinking about what you said there, I wish, I wish the number of times I've heard teachers say, I hope I haven't said it too much myself, but I certainly had it said to me when I was urged to grow up as a teenager. <laughs> and, uh, you know, somehow you're not 11 or 12 anymore, therefore you should be an adult. And and embrace the, you know sit there silently and listen to things quietly and not behave weirdly. And so the, yes, the, the teenage brain is a very weird thing. Yeah, and we know from the education research that those teachers that have good, effective classroom practice are able to self-monitor and control their emotions and respond effectively in the classroom to the children. And I think this just this understanding is another tool in the toolkit of self-control, isn't it? You know, I see what's going on with you. Now you're being a bit silly because I've put you in a group. It's because actually you feel a bit embarrassed and we haven't really got you used to that group yet. It's not because you're being bad and I'm going to tell you off for doing it. I see why you're going off and being fascinated by all these new ideas and connecting things I didn't want you to talk about. It's because your brain's doing that all the time in the teenage years. That's why they're all so fascinated with the new 
almost certainly a huge evolutionary advantage to have brains that change that much. It's it's not known in the rest of, of the animal kingdom. It seems to be a unique aspect of, of being a human being. Seems to me that what you're saying here is that how educators and teachers respond to an understanding of the plasticity of the human brain is by recognising the necessity for education to be itself quite plastic, quite adaptable, quite vivid, structured, yes, but able to adapt and respond. Well, th that appears to me to be an enormously difficult task, but certainly not one that is characterised by uniformity or uniformity of dress or indeed uniformity of lessons or, or top-down approaches where there's a way of teaching or a structure of teaching or a lesson plan of teaching? Well, one of the metaphors that uh, is sometimes used in the cognitive psychology world to talk to educators is that memory is the residue of thought. The more you think about something, the more you've worked your working memory, the more you've connected it to something else from a neuroscience and association point of view. And neuroscientists would say, all learning is association from a neuroscience point of view. That's how those people that do those memory tricks can remember huge audience names and things like that because they make these deliberate associations and rehearse them before they move on to the next person. So that's very, very important part of the process, isn't it? Getting the children to think hard, as Rob Coe put in that really excellent summary of where we are with the education research, is something that can easily get forgotten in the pace and rush of a lesson. If you get your children to think hard about something, that's the answer. And you can do it in lots of ways. You can do it in a traditional whole class instructional way. If you're stimulating enough, the material flows logically enough, you model well enough, and the children are engaged in classroom discussion. You can also do it really well in group work and collaborative learning. But equally, you could do that badly in both of those. Just because you've taught an instructional lesson doesn't mean the children are thinking hard, nor does it mean they're thinking hard if they're working in group work. So I think these ideas can really help teachers to get down to some fundamental principles, a bit like the fundamental principles that physicists, the architects are using from physics. Get the children to think hard. And that also the idea of not just learning, as you say, learning to learn, learning the study skills, which is a very dry way of learning to learn, but being self-reflective. Um, I, I think I was talking a couple of weeks ago to a, to Stephen Gorad from Durham University, who talked to me about an experiment. Was it an experiment? I'm not sure. I think it was an experiment actually, with getting students to form groups to talk about philosophy and ethical issues, and it having a knock-on effect, curiously, in things like mathematics. So it's a bit like your experience of music. Well, if that was, I think that was your experience of music, leading on to a sort of having cognitive benefits you didn't see at first. So discussing. Thinking about thinking in that broader sense had an effect on how they learned in maths lessons. I would never have guessed that. Remember that you don't trigger any learning process in terms of cognition unless attention is focused on something really clearly. Remember that repetition is not an evil, but if the repetition isn't interesting and salient, sort of tangy and salty, as they'd say in ancient Greece and Rome, which is what neuroscience was called, a novel stimulus, then it's going to drop out of working memory and not get anywhere near long-term memory. And remember that things have to be brought back into working memory 
in order for other things to be added to them. And that sort of gets a bit lost in the working memory discussion, I think. It's not just that working memory is limited and you don't want to go beyond three things at once before you then do something with it. It's the fact that once you've got those things combined, you can add a fourth, fifth, sixth, an almost infinite number of things can come together to the extent that someone can drive a car and understand what the difference between a car and a rocket is. And all these huge things can come together in working memory once they're combined through this extraordinary, extraordinary process. Richard, you've made the comparison earlier between the medical profession, hospitals, and the research that's done by doctors, and the way teachers might also be empowered to conduct research. It strikes me that while there are schools that now specialize in training teachers, we might have something like a kind of teacher training hospital in the sense of the teacher training school that conducts research is at the cutting edge. I know that in Finland, and I'm going to interview Dr. Jennifer Chung uh, later this uh, week, whose book on the, F the Finnish education, the schools in Finland, and they're normal schools. They, they call them normal schools, but they seem to me extraordinary, really, where academic research linked to universities and teachers involved become the model for a kind of hospital teaching schools. Well, it's interesting you said teaching schools and teaching hospitals in that question. The moment you started that question, my mind leapt to the teaching school initiative and how wonderful it was in that white paper that was put together by the coalition government early on. It's gone a very long way. I think it needs to go a step further. And I think we know enough about some areas of effective teaching and learning where we could have programs that are much more integrated between universities and actual delivery in a way that a teaching hospital is. Is there a teaching school in England that's like a teaching hospital? No, it's not quite the same. If you went to, to um, St George's Teaching Hospital in London, which I know quite well uh, because I'm a family member that trained there, people are going off the ward to do the lecturing the people that are being lectured to are taught the theory, then they take it into practice in the ward within the supervisory structure. We've still got a little bit of a disconnect where generally it's not all education departments because many of them really are excellent, but some of them are just layering a sort of master's level writing and reflection on top of qualified teachers. In some cases, largely ignoring um, some of the more robust evidence we have about teaching and learning. And I'd like to see universities more in the space of the translators of that evidence into practice and the supporters of that process in a more integrated way. So maybe one day someone will create a, a teaching hospital style teaching school. We could go a little bit further. Uh, that's not a criticism of what's been done. I think the journey that's been travelled has been fantastic. And the work that EEF have layered over the top of that with research schools the way in which they're getting the research schools to be the writers and builders of the guidance reports, with EEF helping them to understand what's in the teaching and learning toolkit of the metas, is absolutely great. And it's really the way to go. That doesn't connect to your qualification structure in terms of academic qualification directly in the way it does for, say, a physiotherapist or a doctor or a nurse or one of those people. And I think that's got to be the next step. And that could help us to filter out 
some of the things that are no longer the case. I mean, I've heard academics say, and you can see what side of the fence I'm on, oh, well, we'll never learn anything from a randomized control trial in evidence. And then you say, well, how many have there been? And they go, well, there can't have been very many. And I say, well, you do know the Connolly Review, quite a few years ago, identified well over 1,100. And I'm actually sure there have been at least another 900 in that last time. And there's 121 in phonics. And they go, is there? And so there's a bit of a bridge there. Apologies to the academic who might recognize me chatting to them at a meeting the other day. But there is that bit of a gulf. Not all university education, many of them are absolutely brilliant. And of course, you mentioned Stephen Gorard, the work of Durham and how connected they've been with the EF work. Steve Higgins, of course, and other colleagues there. So seems to me, Richard, that the message I'm getting from this discussion with you is that is a, quite an empowering message that teachers are really quite important. It is a craft, of course, but it's also a tremendous skill and a very individually creative skill, and one that teachers shouldn't feel afraid to delve into and try to understand. I would say the number one thing that makes a difference in the classroom is the quality of the teacher, not the school, where it is, the background of children. In terms of progress, it's the teacher that does the job and it's their teaching that makes a difference for certain. Well, that seems a good place to conclude our discussion. Our time is up and Dr. Richard Churches, many thanks. It's been a fascinating discussion. I think I've learned quite a lot and thought, as I think you want us to do, about what it is to be a teacher and what the purpose of schools is. Thanks very much, John. Thanks for inviting me. So what have I learned this week in my ongoing quest to understand what I did all those years in teaching, something just shy of 40-odd years? Well, I think I learned, of course, what Richard said, that teachers should not be shy of understanding the enormous power of what they do. But also, in a scientific understanding, in a research-led understanding, or an evidence-based understanding of teaching, there's a tremendous amount of room for the alchemy and the creativity of teachers as well. Evidence and research is a simply great way of excluding myth, misinformation, and trite management fads. Well, that would be a good thing, I think. Also, if teachers could embrace the idea that the classroom and what they did in it was something they could, they could use to shape the direction of education itself. So much of what happens to us as teachers comes from people who aren't. Listening to Teachers Talk Radio Friday Break with John Gibbs. You can find this, of course, on a Friday at 11 o'clock every second week, or you can listen to it online at any time as a podcast. If you have questions, suggestions, or you would like to be a guest, contact Teachers Talk Radio. They'd be glad, and I would be glad, to hear from you. Thank you for listening. 
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. Join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in. Talk it out.